This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Amal Awad, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Amal is a journalist, screenwriter and author and performer. She has produced and presented for ABC Radio National and has held senior editorial roles at a number of trade publications. Amal's novels include The Things We See in the Light and Bitter and Sweet, as well as non-fiction books including Beyond Veiled Clichés, The Real Lives of Arab Women and Fridays with My Folks, Stories on Ageing, are they separate or did I get that? I no, didn't no, get yeah, that that's, right. that's correct. So it's Beyond Veiled Cliches, The Real Lives of Arab Women. Women and Fridays, Fridays with, with My, my folks, folks. Stories on Aging, Illness and Life. They're just the taglines. Yes, and I'm really thrilled to have her today. I've got her in today for many reasons. One, she's got a new book. Uh, is your newest book Bitter and Sweet or is it Courting Samira? No, Bitter and Sweet is my newest book. Yeah. Courting Samira has a new release in the US. Ah, okay. So it's my Got first, it. it's actually my first novel. Fantastic. Now, I want to talk to you about all sorts of things, but firstly, I want to talk to you about your background and how you came to writing. Where did you grow up? Uh, where did you study? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, I guess, closer on the eastern suburbs side of Sydney, funnily yes. enough. The, yes. I think a lot of Arabs actually did start out on sort of the eastern suburbs in a west side mm-hmm. and obviously now there is a greater concentration in the western suburbs but mm-hmm. by no means do all Arabs live there. Um, not that there's anything wrong with where we live, mm. it's just there is a variety I of grew experiences. Up in yeah. yeah. And I think that I'm finding a lot of Arabs are actually starting to say, Yeah, oh yeah, my parents were in Redfern or yeah. Surrey Hills or Willoughby. Yeah. And so I my parents are both Palestinians they well, my father migrated to Sydney first on his own as a single man. I think over fifty years ago now, and he went back, married my mum in Kuwait, and then you know brought her here, much to her eternal dissatisfaction. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, piled up grievances there, I think. But I mean, we haven't even really begun to unpack the experiences of migrant women. Mm. I've tried very hard to do that as much as possible, but it's there's so many untold stories mm. yet to be. Mm. expressed and shared. And so, yeah, I, I grew up with brothers, no sisters. Um, my parents... How pretty... many brothers do you have? I have four brothers. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> I often hear it the other way around because I've got four sisters and a brother. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. but I never hear more brothers and sisters. There you go. Yeah, no, I have three older, brother, three older brothers and one younger brother. And, yeah, I mean, mashallah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's um, it was an interesting experience because... I am, uh, you know, honestly happy to say an 80s child. Yeah. So I grew up in the 80s when everything was different. Yeah. It's such a different experience being a migrant child in the 80s to what you're seeing now. And, you know, it was, I honestly think, I mean, the doors we've had to open, mm. the ceilings we've had to crash through only to land back on our butts, you know, so many times. It's been really hard. I, I feel really happy to see 
progress, but I also don't feel like we've gone far enough, you mm. know, at, you know, in this country and when it comes to these things. But my parents really championed my education. I am a lawyer by qualification. Uh, and, you know, so I you're don't, a smarty pants? Uh, you know, but I didn't want to be a lawyer and I knew I didn't. <laughs> I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And it's funny because at 28, I became a journalist. And so I did take the very circuitous route, which seems to be my my special trick. It's my mm. party trick. I, I don't ever go the easy way for some reason. But my father, you know, he really wanted me especially to have a career that I could fall back on because I know that my parents wanted me to marry a nice Arab man and have that kind of nice settled life, but they also wanted me to be able to look after myself. And I obviously have broken all of those rules <laughs> and I haven't done anything that I was supposed to do, but not intentionally. It's just, I guess my spirit is quite rebellious in a lot of ways. Yeah. Did I ever think I was going to write books? I mean, I think I just... Maybe a part of me sensed it because I grew up reading so much. I mean, I I was always reading mm. as a kid. And I just loved escaping into these other worlds. I was really big on American fiction when I was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. Babysitter's Club and mm. Sweet Valley High. It wasn't very mm. highbrow. In, yeah. in high school, I did go a little bit more highbrow. But even then, you know, I just, I, I always just had this sense that there are stories to be told. And mm. I really enjoyed escaping into other stories. And obviously, we have heard this so many times now, but... Arabs will always tell you, and a lot of minorities will tell you, where were we in these stories? We didn't exist. And so Mm. it's been up to us to come and create those stories. Mm. And that's what I try to do. Yeah. Well, I'm an Arab that grew up. My parents are both Lebanese. And we first, when we arrived, we arrived in Redfern and we were on top of a butcher, one room, (laughs) one bathroom, not one bedroom, one room, one bathroom, (laughs) one kitchen. And six children and two adults, you know. Yeah. yeah. But really happy memories, really oh, happy yeah. memories. But I'm, I'm bringing that up because I'm thinking about my mother and she, she died about 18 months ago now. And the hardship, the plight, I think, of migrant women in this country was so tremendously hard. I mean, I remember walking through the supermarket with her and she was trying to find Semolina. Just little things like yeah, that and yeah. trying with no language, you know. Yeah. I don't know if I under, it was our life, so I didn't know any different. But when I look back at that now, I just think how hard life must have been for her, raising six children in a country, in a city that she didn't even know the language. You yeah, know? that was my mum, exactly. Yeah. And so dignified. You know, these Absolutely. women came, carried yeah. themselves beautifully. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I just remember, you know, without being told... You know, our parents would naturally find ways to adapt to the environment in ways that they felt were necessary. Yeah, so language so acquisition was very important, yeah. being able to write in English, be able, being able to read in English. And it's not just that. My mum's not a weak person. You know, yeah. she's a strong character. And so being able to meet her environment mm. on her terms, I think, became increasingly important for her mm. as a migrant woman. Mm. So I think it's really true what you're saying. I mean, there's there's so much they silently went through mm. that we just accepted. We just absorbed and that experience. And also how they tried to live their life as they would, as she would have in Lebanon. They were from the north, a place called Skarteb. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. She used to always trying, you know, cooking 
Lebanese food for a family of six every mm-hmm. night. I mean, eight, whatever. I mean, so much. But I do remember this so clearly, and I've spoken about it before. You know, one of our neighbours had a vine in the in the front yard, and she would send us around to get the vine leaves so we can make oh, masha. Yeah. yeah. And um, we would go around, but we'd have to ask, right? We'd have to ask, and we'd ask. And, of course, they didn't know what we, you know, yes, of course, you can have them. Because we were the strange people on the street, as yeah. you can imagine. <laughs> the odd neighbours. Yeah, yeah, the odd neighbours. Because this is going years before your parents arrived. And then we, she would make it for us and then she would make a small pot and then we would go and give it to that yeah. neighbour where we took. Now, they didn't understand that generosity. That mm. that was something. But for her, she had those values in a city that she knew very little about. And not just that, you're picking up on something that I think is really important is my parents really got along with Australians yes. at the time. They yes. didn't have... This tension. There was no. no tension. There was no sense of, um, you know, who are these oddballs? Mm. You know, they they kind of like allowed them into that that world. I guess in a sense, allowed might be the wrong word, but it maybe it's the right yeah. word. But you know, I I do think, and this is something I concluded after writing Beyond Valid Clichés. I really feel like the tension truly began when our generations, like the kids growing up here, started to achieve and. Mm you know, compare mm. in school, in workplace mm. and all that sort of stuff. You know, we we became like competitors, mm. I guess, mm. to these spaces. Mm. We were no longer people they could just look at and go, oh, you're the cute odd neighbour. Mm. You're actually... Who we, makes great food. Yeah, but they can't make up their mind. It's like, do you want us to be like you mm. or are you more comfortable with us being different so mm. that you can hate us? Mm. And keep us down. And so I think it's it's someone I've never tried to be someone who walks around being, oh God, everything is racism. It's not, it's it's actually most of the time racism is so micro aggressive mm-hmm. and it's so silent and yeah. and embedded. Yeah. And it takes years, literally, sometimes to realize what you've gone through. And also that madness that it creates of not knowing, was that actually racism or is that person just messed up? Mm. Like, is that person just like that with everyone? Mm. (laughs) And, you know, the best example I have of that is when I actually wore a headscarf for nearly 10 years and I took it off. And one day I was in the car with my brother and I wanted to get a parking spot and someone obviously thought it was theirs. And I hadn't done anything wrong, but they gave me the filthiest look because they thought that I had stolen their spot. Mm. And my brother just turned to me and he said, you know, if you were wearing your headscarf, you would have thought that was racist. Mm. And I said, yeah, I actually would have. And it it was a really instructive moment for me because I had to remember that you just don't know sometimes. Mm. And and that's why it's hard to know. Like Mm. when I was wearing a headscarf, and I was treated terribly, for example, after 9-11, there were very blatant expressions of racism that there was no doubt denying that. But then there were ones that weren't so blatant. And so it was always hard to know. Mm. Are you just a miserable human being? Mm. <laughs> Are you racist? I've talked about this, this before. Years and years ago, we were living in Glebe. That's where we grew up after we, well, after we left Redfern, we went to Glebe. And my mother had a passion for the arts and for going out and very hard to, to fulfil when you're raising a family. But one of the things we used to do, she loved taking us to the Opera House and to the Opera House forecourt. She just loved that building yeah, so much. Yeah. And we would catch the bus, right? And and uh, one time, you know, we all piled on the bus and then all of a sudden we all had to get off. And I was like, oh, what happened? You know, what, oh, my mother's like, no, no, we're going to walk today. We're going to walk. And I said to my sister, what happened? She's, oh, there's no room on the bus. But when I looked up, the bus was empty. And then I heard my sisters talk about it that night and the driver said, no wogs on this bus. And my mother was trying to put a positive spin on it. 
that just actually really makes me want to cry because mm. I just mm. I feel such sadness mm. when I think about the loneliness mm. of that experience for your mum. Mm. Like, can you imagine? I I can because it wouldn't like what I experienced wouldn't even be a shard mm. of that. Mm that excruciating loneliness mm. of that rejection. Mm. I'm Palestinian and I have never felt hatred more strongly mm. than I do now. Yeah. And that's that's the experience, though, for mm. a lot of Arabs. It's mm. not just Palestinians yeah. experiencing that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, I want to talk about now because you can't ignore now um, and what's happening. And I want to try and unpack it, right? So help me here because I'm super angry. Um, <clears throat> I, so, you know, I have this theory. So an act of violence happens, right? And I feel that we could have actually worked through it. However, Western leadership decided to stand up that very day or the next day and politicise it by saying, I stand with Israel. Just that line and that language, I think, has created this mess because they then gave permission for any kind of... That was like signing the... You know, this permission slip to go mm-hmm. on the excursion? Yeah. Saying that statement by Anthony Albanese... And saying, I stand with Israel, that's just like, okay, wash my hands of everything else and crazy Netanyahu, crazy right-wing government, you can do whatever you like. I, I mean, how do you even begin to unpack this? I think the fact that... We could have approached it differently. Well, it's just, I think there's another agenda at play here. You know, I think that this was a moment that a lot of people were waiting for because look at the hatred. Like, when I see the aerial footage of Gaza completely destroyed... All I can see is hatred. I All I can feel is the anger mm. that somebody must feel mm. to enact that kind of violence on a defenceless Bloodshed. population. And I am so tired of people trying to turn this into this is about Hamas it's not a and Hamas is ISIS. And, you know, have you noticed that they've stopped saying Hamas is ISIS mm. now because it wasn't getting traction because no. everybody called bullshit no. on that pretty quickly. Yeah. You can't compare them anyway. They're no. not the same. No. Regardless of how you feel about Hamas, no. and I'm not defending them or anything no. like that, they are not in the same terrorism class as ISIS. But they, they have very specific targets, sure. very specific uh, motivations. But they're also not in the same terrorist class as the IDF. Oh, God. Look, the IDF 
I the think IDF just have a license, right? And they get funding and they're funded, but they've killed more people than any of the terrorist groups so, around so, them. And what's interesting about them as well is that they're actually not like other militaries. Yeah. So if you actually look at them, they're not uh, very focused on, say, the US uh, Army or Navy or Marines or any of those. They have a lot of um, hierarchy. Mm. People will get... I don't there's know, promoted and, and, yes. and there's a whole regiment, yes. sort of regimented yeah. lifestyle and there yeah. are these these rules yeah. embedded. And and the Israeli army is actually a defence, they see themselves as a defence army, right? Mm. So, you know, essentially a lot of these kids are just, they're put in, they're marshaled into these roles and just essentially taught to harass and intimidate. They're not really army in the traditional sense and that's why you see them doing things like going on the beach and frolicking and, and like, posting videos on TikTok gloating about all Mm. of the victories and it's just the thing that I find excruciating and it is but in a way I kind of almost feel relieved that the lie is exposed it's that nobody is making any effort to hide how racist this is Mm -hmm. it's actually insane to me (laughs) that the masks have all dropped Mm -hmm. and I don't know, like a part of me is actually kind of relieved. It's like, mm. thank you, because now we don't have to all be mm. polite anymore. We mm. don't have to hide behind these these platitudes and these lies that actually you value Palestinian lives. It, you quite clearly don't. Mm. Uh, you know, the news recently was that Biden was warned by staffers, don't repeat the lie that mm. Hamas beheaded babies. Mm. The thing that I but find... But he said it anyway. He said it anyway, and... I, I like even now today I saw something about um like he's almost like backpedaling on don't let Hamas win. So stop mm. bombing them so aggressively. Mm. Because this is what they want. They don't want to live peacefully with Israelis. And it's it's like this idea that Palestinians are sitting there resisting peace. Mm. <laughs> like they're an occupied nation. They were colonized. They don't have even a portion of the rights that Israelis do. I don't even know if I'll ever be allowed to go back there. You know, I've been there multiple times. Thankfully, I'm so grateful that I have been able to touch that land and and breathe that air and walk through Jerusalem because I don't know what the future holds now. But this idea that we're on an even playing ground and, and, you know, you have Piers Morgan going to pains to to find some sort of understanding of, you know, but October 7, October 7, and no matter how many guests tell him, you know, there's historical context you cannot ignore. You simply cannot ignore it. This did not happen out of nowhere. They are not a defenceless, innocent nation that were just minding their own business. Mm. They are constantly inflicting harm and violence upon Palestinians. They have been terrorising and taking hostages for years and years. Yeah, but you what say did this, I read today? 1,200 children. Years yeah. ago it was reported that children were being imprisoned unfairly without charge for throwing they're, stones. They're not prisoners, they're hostages. Right, and so, you know, I mean, I actually interviewed Salwa Dewebus in my book Beyond Bell Clichés because she was in that Four Corners, I think it's called uh, Stone Cold Justice, and John right. Lyons was involved, and John Lyons obviously has written extensively on this. He was, you know, positioned for quite a while in the region, so he knows he knows how it all works. Unfortunately, the minute you try to critique or um, genuinely uh, criticize Israel's tactics, its approach, the fact that they actually have no interest in peace, um, you're called anti-Semitic. Mm. But do you know who, who calls that? They do. 
Yeah, they yeah, use it so much as a defence tool. Where people aren't, they're not feeling that. Well, propaganda is very important. Propaganda. Yeah. that's right. It's, it's gone downhill, I'd say. Yeah. Um, if I'm if I'm judging by like the mockery that yep. some of these videos are getting, because yes. some, there's some really weird things happening yeah. where they're trying to like. You know, the calendar, you saw mm. that the calendar on the wall, they mm-hmm. were like, these are Hamas operatives and mm. it was the days of the week and it was just comical. I, I was thinking this morning of making a list, right, of where we're at and all the atrocities that have happened since 7th of October. Murder in the dark. I mean, the minute you turn the lights off, what's going on? The murder of journalists... Yep. Almost 40 journalists and 58 today. 58? To, uh, today's, I've been, okay. I'm writing about this at the moment. Why so. are we murdering journalists? Yeah. Doctors and their families? Babies in incubators? Hospitals. Hospitals, hospitals being bombed. Like, in what country, like in what shot, world is that okay? People shot in yeah. their beds? Do you remember the big deal when the first, I think it was... Um, the first hospital? Ahli, a hospital yeah. that was the first one. And oh, remember how New quickly... York, oh, New York Times was doing a fact check. Yeah, but do you remember how much it? they scrambled to deny yeah. that? And now look at how many hospitals they've bombed since well, without uh, any the, the, the most astounding thing is that the New York Times, even up to last week or the week before, was still fact-checking that. And I'm like, give me a break. They have... Yeah. Well, firstly, they admitted to it. And secondly, they've gone on to rampage every other But hospital. this is just distraction. It's a good it way is. to not actually focus on the real yes. issue at hand is that we're having trouble accepting yeah. that Palestinian lives are being lost unnecessarily yeah. and that we're not okay with it because yeah. people are afraid to say that because they don't want to be accused of being anti-Semitic. Right. I want to get back to what you're writing about and journalists because this is something that's making me crazy and I've been talking about it on my Instagram page. I listened to a podcast I've since unsubscribed to the New York Times as a protest. But I was listening to a podcast the other day, The Daily, and it was, they were invited, the journalist was invited on a propaganda tour of Al-Shifa Hospital. Mm -hmm. Do you know that journalist, he never once questioned his fellow murdered journalists. Like if that was publishing and 40 of my people in publishing, whether I knew them or not, were murdered... I mean, first, that would be... Yeah, he I've was thought being about that too. He is being toured by the murderers yeah. of his fellow journalists. The peers, yeah, don't And speak never up once spoke about it on the podcast, never mentioned that other journalists yeah. have been murdered. But my other thing I'm going to say, and I'd really like to get your view on this, I feel that what's happened too is that the mastheads are becoming more... Because they're trying to gag us and because they're full of propaganda, all of them that real journalism, grassroots journalism, has come come out and social media. Like mm-hmm. those journalists on the ground in Palestine, they've got 6 million followers, 4 million followers. Oh, more, two million. more, yeah. more. Mataz has like I think more than 11 maybe. Yeah, right. So. so why on earth would we get our news from traditional media anymore who are gagged anyway? Yeah, so I yeah, it's, this is exactly what I've written about. So I actually think legacy media has taken a huge hit it's got no credibility. Um, it's become fake news. It's yeah, and I and I think that what has happened is TikTok, especially, which I was never a huge fan of, sure, but now I've, I've I've peddled back on that. I actually yeah. think it has its relevance. 
it is a very youthful platform mm. and I think that it's extremely powerful that some of the most important videos I've seen have come from American kids basically mm. going, I call bullshit on this. Mm. Actually, do you know the history? Because they don't have, they're not um, sort of brainwashed into thinking a certain way and so they have been watching like years of the Hunger Games and they now know what the villain looks mm. like, I guess, and so they can recognise disparity and, you know, unfairness and discrimination when it when it's happening. Um, thank God for that. And I, and I think that what actually social media is is a mighty competitor to legacy media. So mm. I think that you are seeing mastheads absolutely scramble. Um, look, I, I have a very long journalism background and what I will tell you is one of the biggest shifts for journalists in, say, the last 15 years has been the reliance on online media versus mm. print. Print mm. was very heavily skewed in terms of advertising dollars. They carried print magazines. And now online is very reliant on what? Subscriptions. Mm. So clicks. there are paywalls and clicks yeah. and, you know, they still obviously advertise, but I don't know how much money they're making, mm. you know, from that. And so they have to be controversial and provocative. And what's interesting is, you know, you, you might have seen that a bunch of journalists, one of them, including myself, we, you know, we, we signed a letter saying, look, I, I mean, I don't know how effective these open letters are, but better that than silence. And the fact that you have some big names mm. actually putting their names but on that But look at the letter. response of the master. Right. So one of them was actually just making up bullshit. <laughs> one yeah. of them actually just made up stuff that we didn't say. And then, the, you know, the other ones that I thought, and this is, this is I don't want to preempt my own piece. I'm going to make you read it. But essentially I found it interesting that people who were criticising that letter and saying that you're not impartial and you can't report on this if you signed it, and yet they had taken junkets to Israel. Propaganda tours. So I find that quite telling and interesting. The yeah. I, I guess what's being challenged now is this idea that it's 70-30 in favour of Israel. I don't mm. think that. I think that what the biggest problem is that we clearly don't have the powerful on our side. Mm. Like the money and the politicians are all saying, mm. you know, Israel can do what it wants. We support them unequivocally. But do the people feel that way? I don't think so. Because think if, so if you look at, I guess if you look at the, the, the mass demonstrations that are happening yeah. week after week, I mean, I'm seeing people fill my inbox basically saying, I did not know. Yeah. I had no idea. Like these, there are a lot of newborns to this well, cause. I've been to Lebanon many times. I did not know. I knew, yeah. but I didn't know to it's, what it's, extent. There's yeah. something different is happening yes. now. And so it's, it yeah. goes beyond media. It, mm. it, it goes beyond disinformation. It's actually about the thing that I have always been trying to get to, which is can you see yourself in these people? Mm. This is about relatability. Mm. And what you'll have is you do have people say, well, I'm a mother and mm. I'm seeing kids suffer. Mm. Or and, and look, you know, I think it's a shame that people didn't realise before, but you've also got decades, and I mean decades, of Hollywood painting Arabs mm. as uh, uncomplicated bad guy. Mm. All uh, the time, terrorists. And I'm really against the overcorrection to mm. the good guy. I don't mm. want us to all be good guys either. Mm. We're complex human beings like everybody. Mm. But... Essentially, this is what we're battling. Mm. You know, right now it's, I, I think there's just so much destruction mm. of the old right now that it's going to take time for people to really take stock of what has been lost. Mm. And the beauty of that, I suppose, if you can look for anything, mm. the one light is that from that we can grow and build and prosper in new ways. Mm. Unfortunately, it has come at a, a cost that is just... Beyond, I can't believe sometimes how many people are, like have died. I mean, we have now eclipsed 1948. 
Mm. In terms well, of displacement and death. I saw something the other day, the UN said that Gaza is now one of the most... I, I, I get so emotional. Gaza is one of the most dangerous places for children on this earth. Well, they're not even making it to adulthood. So, no, like, I was reading being... this morning that, like, if you were born 18 years ago in the West, you're 18. Mm. If you were born 18 years ago in Gaza, you've lived through five wars, if you're mm. lucky. And the thing that I love about, you know, these journalists on the ground, so, you know, we all know Bassan, Plessia, and um, uh, Mutaz are the oh. most famous. Well, obviously, he lost his kids, you know, and his wife. That was tragic. Um, but the the those three in particular are important because they're communicating in English. Mm. And there's something... One of them's homeless now. Well, I th- yeah. Well, and Plastia actually came to Australia. I don't know. I think she's gone back home now. But right. she she was here for a little while. Oh, and her story, she was talking about how she was yeah. in Australia, staying with a, with family. But the thing that they have done is they've shown that hey, look, we're we're in our twenties. And and you know, I was talking to a friend the other day about this, and I said the challenge here is not to just get angry; it's that we have to be effective. And it's very hard when you're sad and you're angry. I get it because it's so easy to want to just give up and feel defeated. But the thing is, I look at those journalists and say they have not given up. They actually, this isn't what they want to be doing. Mm. None, I'm sure if you offered them their old oh, life back, they would take it in a heartbeat. I'm living in fear. But look, look what they've stepped they've stepped up to it. Look what they've managed to achieve. And they have They're I amazing. honestly believe they have changed the world. They They're have changed amazing. the world. Yeah, I agree. Do you know I get lots of messages from, you know, friends, oh, are you looking after yourself? Are you okay? Because I've gone really hard on it on my Instagram. And, you know, it's small. I've got a very small following. But I, I'm so outraged every morning that I wake up that I always do something. But I just want to say uh, actually, I'm okay because I'm sitting in the comfort of my own apartment in Sydney and I'm not one of those people out there. I just can't. I have to be a voice for the voiceless at the moment. But I just wanted to say another thing too. I've been threatened and people like me have been threatened and we've been threatened in Sydney. Yeah. There is an underground group really of Fair haters that, yeah. Yeah, of haters that are it's like turning the lights off in Gaza. They turn the lights off to kill. They turn the, they kill journalists to silence us so we won't see what's going on. And people are trying to do that here in Sydney. It's A lot of people are being threatened. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, it's not easy to the Sydney Theatre Company. Oh, <laughs> yes. the Sydney Theatre Company has cancelled. Yeah, a performance. Seagull and yeah. um, and why? Just because of, three a couple actors. Of yeah, like Kufias. Like it's. I just I can't I don't I can't get my head around the fact that somebody would would say that they've lost sleep for three nights because of a kufia, but there are literally kids who will never ever be they're they're, they're unalive to use that that common word now. I mean, truly, they've been un, like you know, and it's and how privileged for her to be able to say that when you know kids in humidity cribs have been murdered. But we're 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 like told to skirt around these things yeah. and watch out for the feelings of everybody. But nobody's looking out for our feelings. No. Like, I haven't seen government ministers, no. look, uh, you know, extending their no. their compassion and warmth to Palestinians in Sydney. I've never no. once felt any kind oh, of support oh, from I mean, government. I think the silence of Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong, who I will say I voted for Anthony Albanese at the last election. I um, didn't, and I'm so glad I didn't. Yes, there you go. <laughs> he, apparently he once walked with the Palestinians. Did you hear that? You know, I interviewed him what years happened? ago. I have a funny what story happened? about that. No, he was... Yeah, look, I actually thought he was a good guy. I, I, mm. He's a silent guy now. Well, because I, I, when I was in trade media, I interviewed him 
for because I was on the financial mm. services side, and he was, I think, the minister for infrastructure or something at the time. And you know, I remember like you know when you're scrambling to get an interview with with politicians, sometimes it can be really difficult. And I I just remember him being in a car on his way somewhere, saying, "No worries, Amal, let's take." Yeah. It. And now I look at him and and I think, mm. I just. I, it feels like a different lifetime mm. that mm. I spoke to you as a journalist and I was just Amal from a particular magazine. Mm. And the thing that I would just like to say is that you're saying people are getting threatened and they're not even Arab, they're not even Palestinian. So what what do you think happens to people like me? Do you think that I, like, do you think that I and other Arab artists and writers right now are sitting pretty? We're, we're kind of monumentally screwed right now because... We're already on the margins and we're being further pushed out to the margins because we're never going to be allowed to just stand up in the mainstream. And look, on the one hand, I embrace my outcast status. I always have. But on the other, it, it's such an impediment to progress to say that we can only exist in a bubble on our own and only mm. appeal to the people who know us. And unfortunately, I just think that something has to shift in terms of it's up to people to show with how they spend their money, where they put their eyeballs, like, you know, where they direct their, their gaze, basically, what they listen to. We have to be really mindful right now. It's not simply about boycotting Starbucks and McDonald's. It's about where are you giving your energy to right now? Mm. Because, you know, I take people's point about taking care of yourself because we have to stay energised. We have to stay healthy. And I'm look, I don't know, I can't speak for other people. I actually do have a, a health condition that I have to deal with and it's a lifetime one and it's one that I'd have to take very seriously. But a couple of people have said, you have to be careful. And it's like, but in a weird way, I feel completely purposeful and energised right now. I feel activated. I feel mm. like a switch has gone on. Mm. And everything I have worked for as an artist or as a, as a writer has been to normalise Palestinians so that when this moment came, people could see their humanity. And I honestly feel like the biggest failure because I couldn't get there on time. I just couldn't get there. I couldn't get there to get people to see this shared humanity, these shared experiences, the fact that actually we're really not that different. We mm. want the same things. We crave love. We crave acceptance. We mm. crave belonging. we got to go. We're out of time. But do you know what I want to say to that, Amal? That, no, I don't think you're a failure at all. And I think that 90%, 95% of the population are behind you and are behind Palestine. It's just that the few very loud voices and the haters that aren't, and it's not us. Thank you. I, I hope so. I hope that... Um, Thank you for your time. I hope that this disaster actually leads to progress in some way. I hope so too. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.